morning. It's good to be here in church this morning. Uh, glad to see you all here. Glad to be here myself. Um, consider it really a privilege and a blessing to be here um, preaching the Word of God this morning. My name is Austin, as Lucas said, Austin Pinckney. I um, am an elder in training here at Cornerstone. I also would love to meet you if we get a chance, maybe after the service or something. Um, Anyways, we are in this series um, on the prodigal son, possibly one of Jesus' most uh, famous parables, most well-known, if not the most. People uh, in church and outside of church seem to know what you're talking about when you say uh, the prodigal son. And as Larry pointed out last week, prodigal is not really a word we use that often. It's a word that means like uh, spendthrift, I think is the, the definition I saw. Someone who spends money uh, frivolously, unwisely. And uh, so that's kind of the, the, the point of that, that first son is that he spends his money very, un- that's not the whole point, but that's part of it. You know, he spends his money unwisely. Um, but it's kind of a misleading title, The Prodigal Son. Uh, it's a, the title that's stuck around for a long time since early translations of the Bible into English. Um, but it's a little misleading, as I said. There, it kind of implies that the prodigal son is the, is the main character. And often we do either associate ourselves with the prodigal son, uh, maybe from knowing, from what, knowing what God has saved us from, right? But uh, there, there are three main characters, not just one. There's the father, there's the, the younger son, the one we call the prodigal son, and there's the older son. And uh, so we're looking at all three of these characters. Last week, Larry talked about the prodigal son. This week, I'm going to talk about the older son. And next week, Mike is going to talk about the father. Um, so our, our topic today, of course, is the older son. I think it's very important that we don't... Um, you know, Jesus included the older son in this story for a reason, right? There's a reason that he's there. And uh, we can't just skip over it. Um, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to check that out today. Our text is... Um, Luke chapter 15, verses 25 through 32, if you have your, your Bible or phone app or something. Uh, we're mostly going to be there. You can kind of leave it there. have some other scripture we're going to go to, uh, but we'll put that up on the screens here. As we go through this, we're going to do it in uh, three parts. So our first part, we're going to kind of check out the context of this parable. What's going on in the gospel of Luke and the story that Luke is telling about Jesus uh, we're going to look at kind of the historical context is that as, of that as well, some of um, how culture was at the time. After that, we're going to look uh, at this part of the parable itself about the older son. We're going to kind of go verse by verse through that. And then last, we're going to look at why this matters to us, why it's important that we, um, why we read and study this parable today and what we learn from it as followers of Christ. So first on the list is the context. Where, what's the context within the story of Luke's gospel? Where is Jesus? Where is he going? What is he doing? He's on his way to Jerusalem. Um, chapter 9 in Luke, Luke 9, 51 says that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus is making his way there uh, to Jerusalem. It's the holy city. It's where the temple is. It's where people would celebrate the uh, Passover all this stuff. So Jesus is making his way there. And we know, you know, if you've um, been in church or, or uh, are familiar with the gospel story, we know that Jesus goes to die on the cross, right? And so we see uh, from this verse, this is, uh, this is God is sovereign over this journey. He's sending Jesus there. Jesus is going there um, 
uh, for us to reconcile us to him, right? So we know this is not, the cross was not an accident uh, or a bad ending to a, to a good story or something, um, but that he has a purpose. So as he's going, making his way towards Jerusalem, going through various towns, villages, cities and stuff on the way there, uh, he's going through, he's um, proclaiming the kingdom of God, He's healing people. He's performing miracles. The blind receive sight. Lepers are cleansed. The lame walk. Um, He feeds thousands of people at a time, calms storms. I mean, crazy stuff, stuff that the world has never seen. Um, It's it's incredible, really. Uh, So as he's going, he's doing these things. On the way, he's managed to make some enemies, right? Uh, Larry pointed out last week in, in the beginning of his sermon that um, this parable has a particular audience. So, uh, verses uh, in verse fifteen, sorry, chapter fifteen, verses one and two, the beginning of the chapter we're in here, it says, "Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them.' So he's made Jesus has managed to make an enemy out of the Pharisees, right?" Well, to kind of understand why he's made an enemy out of the Pharisees, we have to know a little bit about Pharisees and tax collectors. So um, this is where I talk about kind of the the historical context. Um, Who were the Pharisees? What were they about? Why do they uh, play such a big part in all four Gospels? Um, What's their deal? So the Pharisees, they were uh, a sect of Jews. They were kind of... um, sort of a conservative, fundamentalist sect of Jews. One way I've heard it put that I uh, really kind of liked was they were kind of like a back-to-the-Bible movement. And we think of that as like a good thing, right? Uh, it's good to um, go back, go to read the Bible, see what the, the Bible says. I, you know, even thinking about like Martin Luther, that was kind of, um, you know, he's reading the Bible and saying, you know, this doesn't line up with what the Bible says. You know, the church is doing this and the, the Bible says this. So that's kind of a good thing, right? We would call that a good thing. Uh, the, the thing is, though, they took it, uh, a little too far. Um, they, uh, in, their, in their zeal, in their excitement to know God's word and to follow the law, uh, they really kind of latched onto the law, right? So in their zeal, in their excitement to do that, they kind of created traditions to maybe help them follow the law. And these traditions became almost more important than God's word. They upheld these traditions uh, in, an, in a very unhealthy way, Right? Uh, to kind of to add to that, the word um, Pharisee is uh, uh, it come, that that the word we use comes from a Greek word, but the um, the origin of the title itself is Hebrew, and it means distinct or separate, set apart. So, um, in, a, in a in a way, the Pharisees sought to separate themselves, make themselves distinct from other people by the way that they followed the law, by the way they lived their lives. They um, it was kind of this very like outward appearance of righteousness and holiness, right? So they um, they're so so adamant about that that they kind of lose sight of knowing God. They're so um, attached to their their traditions that they they lose sight of who God really is, right? Um, so essentially, they sought to earn their righteousness from their works, right? From the things they did, whether that was tithing properly, uh, fasting and praying. Jesus talks about them uh, when they fast. They go around contorting their faces so people know that they're fasting. They pray in the, in the street corners so people can see them praying. They like the, the good seats at the synagogue. Um, and, and really, all that's kind of a show to say, hey, you know, I'm holy. I'm righteous. I do these things the right way. 
And uh, so that's, that's kind of what this parable is getting at. So the tax collectors, how about the tax collectors? The, who were they? The tax collectors, you have to th- remember that at this time, Israel is under Roman authority. They are not, Israel, the Jews don't rule themselves at this point. Um, they're, they're occupied by Rome. They, Rome is the highest authority in the land. Uh, Rome, obviously, as we've seen, has allowed them to keep some of their customs, religious customs and things. They have a temple. They do these kinds of things, um, sacrifices and stuff. They have their priests. But ultimately, Rome is the, 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 the top authority for Israel. So Rome, they have to fund their projects, their government, right? They have to fund their uh, their infrastructure projects, they have to fund their army, they have to fund the government officials. Um, you know, they all want a piece of the pie, right? So like any good government, they tax the people, right? So that rather than going out and collecting the taxes themselves, they delegate a little bit of the authority to the locals. Uh, they sell tax franchises to locals in these areas, such as um, Israel. Uh, they... Um, People can you could buy a tax franchise, and that would that money would go to Rome. That that's the taxes paid to them, and then of course uh, these tax collectors would go out and collect taxes from the people, but at a ridiculously high markup. So they're they're fueled by greed, right? They're greedy. They want to make money, and. Essentially, people, most people who probably weren't tax collectors or buddies with tax collectors saw them as traitors. They didn't like the Roman government. They didn't like being ruled by an idolatrous pagan government. Uh, they didn't appreciate that. And so anyone who was collecting taxes for Rome, helping them out, was seen uh, as a traitor to Israel. So um, that's why the Pharisees, you know, really why they don't like the tax collectors. They see them as traitors. They see them ungodly, um, supporting idolatry and, and uh, pagan practices, stuff like that. Uh, as far as sinners go, you know, I mentioned earlier that this, a lot of this stuff was linked, this, their theology, um, maybe physical, your physical state kind of maybe reflected like your spiritual state. Maybe you might be blind because of some sin that you did or your parents did. Same thing with like leprosy, um, all very like linked to your, your spiritual state of sin. And so, uh, as Jesus is going through the countryside, going to village to village, town to town, uh, healing people, the, the Pharisees see this as, um, as undeserved. This is like unwarranted grace that he's giving them. They don't deserve this, right? The Pharisees, they're the holy ones. They're the righteous ones. Um, they should be getting the attention, not these tax collectors that Jesus is eating with, not these sinners who are being healed. So, that's, that kind of brings us to the beginning of chapter 15 here where, um, as I mentioned, Larry pointed out that the, um, the, the Pharisees are grumbling because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Um, so we know a little bit about why they're so upset, why they don't like tax collectors and sinners, why they don't like Jesus at this point because, I mean, for him to eat with them would it be for him to affirm them, right? Would have been, if you're sitting down and having a meal, obviously you're one of them, right? Um, so they don't like Jesus, right? So 15, that brings us to chapter 15. Jesus, the, the whole chapter 15 is three parables. There's the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Both, in both cases, there's a, a seeking entity. There's someone, whether it's the shepherd or the woman who has lost something and they're seeking it, whether they're seeking either the sheep or the coin. And um, when they find, when these people find the, the sheep or the coin, they, they celebrate. They call their friends and celebrate, and that's kind of an illustration of how God seeks out us, how Jesus sought out um, those who were sinful, those who were 
who needed a savior, right? Um, and how he saves us. It's kind of an illustration there. But then the, the parable of the prodigal son is next, and it um, kind of takes things a step farther. It goes past the idea, just the, the seeking. It also, we see this um, idea of, of repentance with the younger son. I'll give you a quick review of the younger son, just so we kind of need that to maybe contrast with the older son. I won't spend too much time on the review, but we'll, um, let's do it. So uh, in the first part of the parable of the prodigal son, uh, of course, there's a man who has two sons, right? Older son and younger son. The younger son comes to him and asks for his share of the inheritance. Would have been about a third of uh, what the father had. The father um, does it. He, he allows, he, he splits the inheritance between the two boys, the two sons. The younger son liquidates his assets, turns into cash, moves to a foreign land, uh, parties hard, spends all his money in reckless living, and then something outside of his control, there's a famine, and that makes life even harder. Uh, probably his friends who loved him when he had money have abandoned him. Uh, and so he's left helpless. He takes a job feeding pigs there, and he's wishing that he could eat the pods that the pigs are eating. That's how kind of poor he's feeling, how low he's feeling. And then it strikes him one day, man, my father's day laborers, my father's servants, workers, they make more than enough to live on, to feed their families and feed themselves. He says, maybe if I go back and I, I repent, I tell my father I've sinned against him in heaven that maybe, just maybe he'll let me um, come on as one of his day workers. Maybe that would, and, and that's, I mean, that's sufficient to him. Isn't that great? So he goes back. Uh, of course, the father sees him. He runs to him, kisses him, puts a ring on his finger, puts a robe on him, puts shoes on his feet. They kill the fattened calf and they throw a party, right? Um, a really an amazing a uh, picture of grace, how God comes to us and saves us from our sin, right? Um, kind of Larry's point last week was that we can't out God's grace. No one's too far gone. And I really appreciate that point. I think that um, I, I, I've heard people say that before. You know, I, I, I'm too far gone or, or I can't be saved or something. And, and it's just not true. Uh, God's grace is sufficient for us all. So, um, I want you to kind of picture the Pharisees listening to this story. The, the kind of the, the culture was kind of based on honor and shame. Think about the commandment to honor your father and your mother, one of God's Ten Commandments. We, you know, the, the idea you would preserve, you would honor people, you would honor your father or your mother, you would preserve your honor, preserve the honors of other people. It would have been not good to shame them. You wouldn't do things to shame them. Or if you did something bad, you might be shamed. So the Pharisees are listening to this story, and they're shocked because no one's honoring anybody. The first of all, the, the son comes to the father and says, hey, give me my share of the inheritance, which is kind of like saying, hey, dad, I wish that you were dead. I'd rather have your stuff than, than to have you here with me. And then another dishonor, the, the father actually does it. You know, he wasn't ob obligated to do that, but he does it. He kind of takes on this shame for him. Of course, all of his reckless living, the younger son is dishonorable. Um, we would even say that today, right? And then the father taking the son back, that's, again, that's um, dishonorable to himself. It would have been acceptable for him to shame his son in that, <clears throat> in that instance. So we have... The Pharisees are shocked, right? Like, nothing is going the way they think it ought to in this story. And so, that kind of brings us to the older son. And so, the older son in this parable, spoiler alert, 
The older son is the Pharisees. This is, this is kind of why Jesus is telling this parable to these Pharisees. Um, so the, the, this older son shows up, and he looks like what the Pharisees would want, what they would do. He's, the things he's doing kind of make sense with them. This is their guy, right? Okay, so we're going to kind of, we're kind of caught up to this point of the parable now, uh, or this point in the parable. We'll go through it. I'll read it to you, and then I'm going to go through it um, kind of one or two verses at the time. So starting in chapter 15 of Luke, verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Okay, so that's the story. That's the overview. That's what happens. Let's kind of go back. We'll go a little bit at the time. Verse 25 and 26. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Okay, so kind of picture this scene here. It's like the end of the day. Uh, the older son is coming in out of the field from working. Now, what did working look like for him? Uh, he probably didn't work terribly hard, probably more of an overseer or a uh, supervisor position. Uh, we have to remember, you know, the younger son mentions that his father's uh, hired, hired help, the day laborers, they make, uh, they, they, they make a generous amount of money, right? So we know that uh, it's not like they have to do the work themselves. They hire people to do it. They're able to pay them generously, um, he's coming in from the field. It's probably, I think we can assume it was a fairly large estate, right? Uh, they've managed to start this party off without him knowing about it. Um, so he gets there. And uh, keep in mind also, this is, the, this is the older son. He's kind of the next guy in charge after the father, right? So he's kind of coming up. And he's probably wondering, what's this party going on? You know, what is, I'm, the, I'm like the second guy in charge, no one asked me about a party. No one told me about a party. The father's already given him this stuff, right? As we noticed um, back in chapter 12 or verse 12, I'll kind of hit on that a little bit more in a second, but this is his stuff, you know? So uh, what's going on? He's suspicious, right? So we know, um, so he calls over a servant, right? Comes across a servant, asks what's going on. And, and of course, the, uh, the servant tells him, uh, that brings us to verse 27, and he said to him, this is the, uh, the servant saying to the son, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Um, I think most people think that the older son hated to see the return of the prodigal son the most, but really I think it was the fattened calf. I think he got the short end of the stick there um, being killed and roasted, right? Um, no, in all seriousness, we know, like I mentioned earlier, that uh, verse 12 says that he, the father, divided his property between them. So the two sons have got their property. Um, the first one just, the younger one, uh, just, you know, sold it all and moved out, right? Uh, the older son, of course, you know, I mentioned kind of honor and shame. And, and I think that we get a little bit of characterization for the older son 
in that verse 12. Okay, so um, you know, the, the younger son goes and asks, and the father divides it between the two of them. If the older son loved his father and cared about it, he may have said, hey, um, brother, you shouldn't be doing this. You, you're saying that you would rather our father be dead, but um, he's kind of an opportunist, I guess. He, he lets it happen. Um, he takes his share then, right? So that kind of gives us a little bit of um, idea of his character, right? Coming into focus a little bit more, seeing maybe how he's kind of like the Pharisees. So um, we see that verse 28, but he was angry and, uh, oh, uh, sorry. And also just, I mentioned a second ago, you know, this is his stuff, right? That's his, that's his fattened calf. Um, they're digging into his stuff to throw this party. You know, he uh, probably thinks the father is foolish for throwing this party. Uh, and, and even more so, it, it, uh, as we see in the next verse, makes him angry that uh, they're using his stuff to throw the party, right? So verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Okay, so we see that he's angry. And again, that's because they're, they're using his stuff. No one consulted him about this party. Uh, he's feeling very shamed and slighted at this point, right? So this is starting to see some of his true colors. See that he's angry. You know, if, I, um, if my brother were lost out in a foreign country, we didn't know if he was dead or alive, I, I, would, um, I would be glad to see him. You know, I would... I would love to see him. I would, I, I would hope I would anyways. Um, but he's not. He's angry, right? So we see kind of who he is. And the second part of this verse, his father came out and entreated him. Um, I think it's amazing. And, and again, I don't want to spend too much time on the father because it's going to be covered next week. But the father, uh, he comes out to the younger son. He runs through the village to greet him. And he comes out of the party for the older son too. Uh, really an amazing picture of grace that God comes and meets us in our sin. He comes and finds us whether we're sinning uh, in reckless, bad living or whether we are sinning in self-righteousness and pride, right? So he comes out. Amazing, right? Um, and the word entreat there, the, the word we, uh, it's not a word I use very often, ever maybe, but the word entreat uh, it can mean beg. So the father's coming out and he's like begging, like, my son, please come in. Please, your brother is back. We thought he was dead, but he's alive. So he's like begging him to please come in. So how does, he, how does the older son answer? Verse 29 and 30. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Okay. So, I mean, if we didn't know, if we were unsure, we thought maybe there was a, a grain of hope for the older son, I think this kind of takes, it, takes all questions out, right? We, we really tell, can tell who the older son is, see his character from this. First, uh, just draw your attention to how he addresses his father. He doesn't call him father or dad uh, like you would call your father. He says, look, look here, look here, man. Uh, these many years I've served you. That word served is uh, kind of a slave word. It has a connotation of slavery. It can mean, um, and, and it can have kind of two different, like a good and a bad connotation. One might mean to, to willingly yield to an authority. 
Um, as we do with Christ, we talk about, um, Paul talks about being a slave to Christ and we kind of willingly yield to Christ, right? As followers of Christ. Uh, in the other sense, it can be a, a sort of a bad connotation, meaning that uh, you're sort of unwillingly yielding to a base power, to a bad or a mean um, authority or power. So I, I, would, I would guess that um, he's sort of unwillingly yielding. He's saying, look, you know, I've been here slaving away for you for years. I've served you. I never disobeyed your command. Um, it's kind of a hallmark of, the, of legalism is that it's just I, I, I. I did this and I did that. I'm not getting what I deserve. Uh, he says, you know, done all these things. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Um, I don't know if you've ever eaten goat. People raise meat goats. Perfectly acceptable thing to do. Um, but there's a reason we have steak houses and not goat houses, right? Because steak is good. And so, you know, you never even, you, you gave this degenerate, sinful brother, this son of yours, he says, doesn't even call him his brother. You gave him the fattened calf. You killed the fattened calf. You served up the steaks for him. Uh, but you never even gave me a goat. And so, um, what we see here is, you know, I mentioned that the father is really just, the, 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 the younger son, the father, him coming back to the father and the father running out to him, this is a beautiful picture of grace, right? And really, that's what the older son doesn't like. He doesn't like grace. He doesn't like that the son or that the father uh, is giving grace to the son, that he's accepting him back in, bringing him in, loving him despite what he's done. The son, the younger son hasn't done anything. Um, the older son has done all the things, right? So he doesn't like grace. He doesn't, it's, it's really rubbing against him in the wrong way. It rubs up against his self-righteousness, his thinking that I deserve these things. I've done everything right these last however many years. Never disobeyed you. So the father's response. And uh, again, we won't spend a whole lot of time here, but I do want to um, just look at a couple of things. Verses 31 and 32 and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So again, as I mentioned earlier, the father comes out to the younger son and to the older son. So we have grace for the younger son and grace for the older son. Grace for the sinner and grace for the Pharisee. And uh, this kind of brings us to our, isn't it great that God meets us wherever we are, wherever our sin is, whether we are uh, de degenerate, whether we are proud, thinking that we are deserving these things and self-righteous, God meets us there. And I, I think that's incredible. But this kind of brings us to uh, kind of one of our main points for today, for this, um, this parable here. That is that being in, being in close proximity to the Father does not mean that we know the Father. So the, the Jews, they were God's chosen people, right? God chose them to um, carry his commandments. He chose them to carry his word. He went before them uh, in the wilderness. You know, he chose them to essentially be a light to all nations. He says that he's going to save the rest of the world through Israel. Um, so they're close to God. They have, his, they have the law and the prophets. They have... Um, they, ha they have the ability to know him, right? But they don't. Even though they're in cl close proximity to him, they don't know him. Even though they stayed home, like the, uh, the older son, they don't know him. They don't love him. They don't know who he is. 
uh, a sermon I listened to on this parable pointed out something that I thought was interesting. The, the speaker says that, the pastor says that there's not really an ending to this parable. It just kind of, Jesus leaves us hanging there with the words of the Father. We don't know what happens to the uh, older son. What does he do? We would love to think that maybe he, um, he says, Father, I'm sorry. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against my brother. I've sinned against God. And let's go into the party. Um, and, and I don't know. Maybe. I would hope that. Um, some things I do know, however, are that the Bible only mentions two Pharisees who are saved. One is implied. That's Nicodemus in the book of John. It's implied that he's saved. He comes to, uh, you see him in three places, but in the third place that you see Nicodemus, he comes to, when Jesus dies, he comes and helps give Jesus the kingly burial that he deserves, right? The other Pharisee, of course, is Paul, wrote like most of the New Testament, um, we know that he was uh, persecuting the church beforehand. Of course, he's stricken blind on the road to Damascus. And through that encounter with Christ, he is saved. Um, and we have so much of our, what we believe and a lot of our doctrine comes from his letters. Um, really an incredible transformation. Also know that the Pharisees, along with the Sadducees, the other religious leaders, priests, Sadducees, Herodians, all these guys, they're the ones who arrange for Jesus' arrest. They're the ones who give them this, uh, this, really this mockery of a trial, really very unjust. They convict him and execute Jesus. Um, so we, I'm not saying there weren't other Pharisees saved. We just see how much, um, how deadly really that self-righteousness and pride is, that they, they, they were unwilling to see uh, what was right in front of them. So why does this matter to us? The Pharisees believed that their works would save them. They believed that their righteousness, what they perceived as their righteousness, the things that they did, was what was drawing them closer to God. They said, you know, I'm holy because of this thing that I do. I'm holy because I pray and fast and all these things. Uh, and I think that while there aren't necessarily what we would call Pharisees walking around today, I think we can still take a, a Pharisaical attitude about things. And so, uh, as I was kind of doing this sermon, I kind of thought of some things, and this is not an exhaustive list. I think that there are probably plenty of things that we could become pharisaical about. We could become self-righteous, proud about when it comes to um, our religion, our, our being Christians, right? Uh, but these are some I thought of. Not, this is not meant to target people or anything. This is just, just kind of what I thought. Um, so some things that maybe we're self-righteous about. Maybe Bible versions, how we raise our children, whether that's discipline or education, uh, worship, how we choose to worship the Lord, the way we dress our clothing, how we serve in the church or outside in the community, um, politics, also maybe our knowledge of God or our theology. So none of these things that I've listed here are bad in and of themselves, right? Um, I would say that it's okay to have opinions on these things. It's so, I mean, people are going to feel convictions about things. Um, we're all different. We're all sinful. We're going to be convicted about sin in different ways. And so, um, the problem, and so I, I think we should react according to those convictions. I think we should ask for wisdom uh, concerning these kinds of things. I, I don't think it's any bad thing to want to know how God works um, as far as like theology goes. The problem is, Whenever it's Jesus and, right? Jesus 
and our Bible version, or Jesus and our theology, Jesus and the way we dress, Jesus and the way we worship. If these things become attached to our righteousness, then we have it all wrong. Uh, so my, I kind of have a challenge for us, for you, for me. Um, I know thinking about, oh, thinking about this parable, you know, I've often thought of myself as the prodigal son, uh, knowing what God has saved me out of. At the same time, in, in seven years of being a Christian, um, I've, done, I've, I've noticed older son tendencies in my life too with pride and stuff like that. And so we're, it's not, I don't think it's ever, you're one or the other. Um, potentially there are people at their extremes, I would say, but I think it's maybe more of a sliding spectrum. You could be on this kind of scale here, this spectrum of these two brothers. And so my, kind of my challenge is that we would examine ourselves and say, you know, what am I clinging on to besides Christ? What am I finding my righteousness in besides Christ? Psalm 139, 23 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And, and that's, a, that's a prayer, right? So um, I would say, I would encourage you to, to pray this too. And it's, it's not an easy prayer. It's a kind of a scary prayer to say, God, show me where I'm self-righteous. Show me where I'm proud. Show me how I lean on myself and cling to these, um, these things rather than you. And, and he will, I promise, if you, if you pray that prayer, he will, uh, he, will, he will show you those things. So um, I want to end with kind of an anecdote analogy here. I have two little boys. They are under two years old. Uh, they're both toddlers. They're both walking and they're sort of talking. They destroy things. They're very loud also. Uh, uh, this is the second service, but uh, my wife and I normally go to the first. If you've come to the first service at all, you've maybe heard us before in the corner back there. They're, they're loud. I'm telling you, I'm sorry about that. But um, I realized the other day, I was telling my wife that maybe they're loud because I'm loud. And what I mean is I, we play, I like to you know, they're boys. I kind of roughhouse with them a little bit. I chase them around. I roar at them, all this stuff. And so maybe they've learned that from me. But one of the things I do, I say, you know, I might come to say, let me hear your war cry. And, uh, and we do it. You know, we do our war cries. I'm not going to do it now, but, but, they, but we have a lot of fun doing that, you know, and, and uh, they're loud and rambunctious. But when I was thinking about this sermon and planning it out, I, that phrase just popped into my head. Let me hear your war cry. And I don't know why. I, the Holy Spirit, that's why. So that phrase popped into my head. And so I got thinking, you know, what is our war cry as Christians? And I thought, maybe to sum that up, that Christ, Jesus Christ died to save sinners, right? That's like the cornerstone of our theology, our doctrine. That is what unites us as followers of Christ, right? So just thinking, if, if our war cry is something else, if our war cry is, you know, something from that list I mentioned, then we have the wrong war cry. If your war cry is anything besides we preach Christ crucified, then you have the wrong war cry. If your war cry is anything besides by grace you have been saved through faith, then you have the wrong war cry. If your war cry is anything besides for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, then you have the wrong war cry. So my, my hope for Cornerstone as a body of believers, my hope for uh, the larger context in the community as Christians, as, as believers, as followers of Christ and, and the whole world is that we would be united in that war cry that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. 
that that would be our unifying element, that that would be how we um, go out into the world, no matter how we do ministry, no matter what that looks like, but that that is um, really at the forefront of our, of our mission. The praise team is going to come back up, and uh, we're going to do our response time. It's a time of worship. Um, you can stay, you can stand and sing with these guys uh, and worship the Lord. You can come over to the cross and pray. There's a little box you can put prayer requests in over there that the elders pray over. Um, you can sit in your seat and pray. You can worship the Lord with tithes and offerings. Uh, we do online giving somehow. And uh, <laughs> I also just want to encourage you, um, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, if you don't know what it means to be saved by grace, um, please come talk to me. Uh, I'll be back in the corner over there while we're worshiping and stuff. I'd love to talk to you. I'll be here for a little while after service. I'd love to meet you, whether you know Jesus or not. Um, let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this time of worship. I thank you for this time that we can come together and we can, we can read your word, God. I thank you so much for your word that we can read it and know you and grow closer to you. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the way that you've enabled us to have um, such a close relationship with you through Jesus. I thank you for the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. I just pray, God, as we um, go about our lives that we would look at ourselves and say, what am I holding on to besides you, Lord? What am I clinging to? And that we would ask you um, to, to help us to lean on you and to take those things, those, that pride and self-righteousness from us. I thank you for this time, again, of worship, God. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.